0: And I, I went down there, they had a wood turning class, blade class, and I participated in my first class there, and I was absolutely hooked. Going back in that woodworking shop, the smell, everything just reminded me of all the years spent in my dad's woodworking shop. <laughs>
1: Hey, Islanders, and welcome to episode 160 of the Comano Voice. Today, I speak with the owner and founder of Northern Lodge Creations. Please welcome Paula Swagger. Hi, I'm Brandon Erickson, and you're listening to the Kameno Voice podcast, where I interview local business owners, comedians, singers, and more. I dive into their backstory to find out how they got where they are, what are some of the tips for you to do the same, and find out where they are going. Tune in every week as I interview more of the people you see every day. Hey, Yale and Welcome to another episode of the Commando Voice, where we release a new episode every Tuesday, uh, at least most of the time. Um, but that's actually something I wanted to touch on real quick. Um, so, historically, I've been releasing these every Tuesday. Um, but this month uh, is going to be a little bit all over the place. I do have this episode um, and had last week's episode, but I won't, uh, and I think I will have one more episode this year. Uh, but then I'll be taking a break for a little bit. Uh, December is going to just be a crazy time for us, so we're going to take that off, and then we'll end that off with a family vacation. So I uh, won't be in town to do some interviews. And then, um, yeah, we're just going through some stuff within the business, so we're uh, I'm a little behind and have a little more time requirement there. Um, so I will be restarting back up as we enter into the new year. Um, so you got a couple more episodes out of here, or one or two maybe, um, this year. And then we'll take in a break until next year. So just want to get that out of the way before we jumped into this episode. Um, so if I don't talk to you before then, <clears throat> Merry Christmas, Happy Thanksgiving, uh, Happy New Year. And I hope you guys are all ready to kick off a great new year in 2023. Um, okay, with that out of the way... Today I speak with Paula Swagger, who is the uh, owner and founder of Northern Lodge Creations. Um, And she has actually been a staple within the marketplace, her products that she makes, uh, her artwork. Um, And uh, so it was exciting to finally get her on the podcast. Um, And we get into so much into this episode. So it's it's a, a long episode, so if it takes you a couple weeks to get through it, that's great because that means it extends how long you can still listen to my voice and um, all of that stuff. <laughs> um, but <clears throat> um, we get into her background as an engineer uh, uh, working for Boeing for many years. Um, and that gets into my background a little bit of working for Janaki and my life as a mechanical engineer for a few years. So uh, we get into that stuff. Uh, we also get into um, her process of how she does what she does. Um, where her love for woodworking and all that came from. And then we also get into a great conversation where we talk about uh, vocational schooling versus conventional college, when's the right move for each. Um, So we get into all sorts of stuff. This is a wide-ranging conversation, um, but it was a lot of fun. Great lady to speak with. Love her products that she she brings in. I keep saying products, but I mean artwork. Um, (laughs) It is these, uh, if you haven't seen her stuff, she's the one who does all of the wooden pieces Um, down that hallway between the bathrooms, not the Dave's Ducks, which is going to be your lights and stuff, but these are like the the dyed woods and things like that. Um, Beautiful pieces, um, always keeps her display looking great. So anyways, that's her, that's her stuff. So be sure to check that out. But without further ado, here's my conversation with Paula Swagger. Hey Islanders and welcome to another episode of the Command Voice. Today I'm here with the owner and founder of Northern Lodge Creations. Welcome to the podcast, Paula Swagger.
0: Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me. This is going to be really fun. Yeah.
1: Um, is that how you pronounce your last name?
0: Yes, it's okay. Swagger. Yeah.
1: Okay, cool. Um, before we get started, tell us a little bit about Paula. Uh...
0: I live here in the Cabano-Stanwood area. I live out by Kenna Kayak Point. Oh, nice. I've uh, been out in the area here now for 30 years. Wow. Yeah. I grew up in uh, Burien, uh, back then Burien was very rural, uh, and then spent a few years in Linwood and okay. uh, then ended up moving out here to this just peaceful, loving area out here that's so nature-oriented, yes. <laughs> yeah. Nice.
1: So you yeah. said you grew up in uh, Burien, Burien, Burien? Burien,
0: Burien, yeah. So Burien is uh, south of Seattle um, by SeaTac Airport. Okay. For those of you up in the north end, yeah, it's, it's north of SeaTac Airport. And uh, back then, I was born in 62, so I'm, I'm going to be, I'm 60 this year. And, uh, ah, congratulations. Yeah, yay. <laughs> it's weird to say I'm 60. <laughs> um, but, yeah, Burien back then, now it's very busy, but back then it was pretty rural. I mean, there was horses and a lot of kind of small farms and just different, yeah. you know, but we grew up in this kind of a, um, I want to say it was a different time. It was uh, you basically as a kid, you'd go out and play and your mom would be like, hey, just get home before dark, you know, call if you're going to a friend's for dinner, you know. Uh, we didn't have, you know, cell phones or computers. Yeah. Three channels on TV, right? Right. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> your imagination and your uh you know was kind of your fun yeah (laughs) Yeah.
1: well and it's it's it is weird how um I've thought about this a lot like how we get so like well what if we can't reach that person like between point a and point b like they're at a service what are we going to do it's like we live so long without really it was just like yeah just be back and if you don't show up before dark then you're like that's weird Maybe they're at a friend's house. Like, I don't
0: know. It was. I mean, I think um, I miss those days yeah. of somewhat being being able to have this kind of private disconnection. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could kind of be in your own space, in your own world. And now it just, if you don't answer your phone, people are like, I texted you. How come you didn't? Well, I was busy. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, I also wonder, like, from an anxious perspective, like, in some ways, you think that the fact that we can communicate at any point makes it so that we'd be less anxious or, like, worried about people. But it makes us more worried because, like, they didn't text back. What if they're in the dish on the side of the road? What if, you know, your brain starts running off? and you're like
0: It does. I never I never used to worry about now when someone doesn't get back to you, you start freaking out. And <laughs> I, we really, uh, me and my husband both talk about how much we kind of miss the days when you were just a little more disconnected. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a little bit more privacy, I think. Sometimes you don't have the privacy because yeah. everybody can contact you at any moment of the day. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. One, one thing that um, I've heard from people uh, when it comes to, like, business, you know, people that run businesses or even manager positions or things like that, uh, they said just because someone has the ability to contact you does not mean they have the right to. It. Like, when it comes to sales calls or whatever, like you know, people reach out all the time. And if they leave a message and it's something pertinent or something that I'm like, oh, I'm interested in that or the cause or whatever, I'll call them back. But if they don't leave me a message. They're not respecting my time because they're just trying to get me so they can get me on the phone to do whatever their thing is.
0: Because I laugh because, you know, back then all you have was, you know, landline, you know, and it would be by the time we were teenagers, me and my sister, you know, two teenage girls fighting over the one phone in the house, uh-huh. and it's my turn to call my friend. It's so funny now to think about those days, and then your mom would be, I need to make a call. You girls need to get off the phone. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. So, very cool. So, g- growing up then, was uh, you went to high school and everything down there as well?
0: Yeah, I did. I um, went to Glacier High School. Uh, graduated in 1980, for those of you. Yes, it was the 80s. Nice. <laughs> it was a um, pretty small school. Uh, didn't have a lot of population down there, so we didn't have a very large class. But yeah. um, High school was a great opportunity for me. I, when I first went to Well, I'll back up just a little bit. Okay. When I was growing up, I spent tons of time with my dad working in his shop. He had a huge garage kind of off the house. Um, And I spent most of my young years either woodworking with him or working on the cars. I was a little tomboy, so I was kind of, you know, his little girl that was always in the shop. So I had just great background, loved hands-on. Uh, my dad was a wonderful woodworker, furniture maker.
1: Nice.
0: He had a forge. He forged metal. He did all sorts of stuff. So it was really... Um, a self-sufficient lifestyle, and I was always like that. Uh, when I got into high school, I had an opportunity to take what they call—it's uh, auto shop or automotive mechanic shop—and yeah. I knew I probably wouldn't go to college. It just wasn't really in our financial cards back mm-hmm. then. Uh, and Highline Community College offered vocational classes, so I was pretty good student so I had most of my credits done really early so I had was able to take extra classes and I took this uh, advanced automotive training uh, sponsored by the community college and so basically I was working towards getting becoming an auto mechanic diesel mechanic by trade that's what I was hoping to do which is kind of weird but (laughs) as and back then I mean 1980 that was an incredibly unusual thing for a a woman or girl to do uh, I know nowadays it's not, but back then it was really, you know, people were like, oh, why are you doing that? You're a girl. <laughs> it's kind of funny, you know, you think about it now. Yeah. Um It was really fun. Um, we had to go, it was like a four-hour class per day. So you would come in two hours earlier than school starts. Wow. And then it would be two hours into the regular school year. And so you had to make a commitment. And, you know, as a teenager, getting up two hours early is really a tough, (laughs) really a tough go. Um, But that was a really good opportunity. And the nice thing about it was they had what's called VICA Competitions, Vocational Industrial Clubs of America. Okay. Okay. And, this, um, and they did it for all the different trades-type stuff. You could do carpentry, mechanics. They had all sorts of stuff. And it was a good sponsorship for vocational training. And I competed in the, all the way up through the state competitions okay. in Washington State. And in my senior year, I took second place. Wow. I was the first girl slash woman that ever competed in the automotive industrial arts thing. Wow. That's
1: really cool. Uh, yeah, it
0: was really fun. So that was kind of my... Um, it was really a bonus and with that it led basically to me getting a dream job offer uh, the Boeing company I got a call and it was the Boeing company and <laughs> I was still in high school so I wasn't even 18 yet and they said hey um we've heard about you that you know you have this automotive training as a woman that's very unusual um uh, we're looking to hire some women into the automotive fields. And the Boeing company has, like, main automotive divisions that maintain all of their equipment and trucks and yeah. vehicles. They said, what i like to interview. <laughs> like, I'm just a kid, you know. I'm like, uh, uh sh- sure? <laughs> yeah. It was really weird. And the story behind how they found out about me was my school counselor, like your guidance counselor. Yeah. He was, had a friend who was a manager in the automotive division. He said something about me taking second in state and how much kind of an uproar it was when I showed up to compete as a girl in a predominantly all-male uh, competition. And he's, the guy was like, well, and again, you gotta remember it was 1980. We're being, you know, forced to hire women into the trades. You know, we were being told we have to bring women into the fields. And he said, would she be interested? Because they were looking for somebody. So I got to uh, go on this interview, which was really strange. Just a child, you know. (laughs) Okay, they're like, you know, what do you know? What are your skills? And so I went over, you know, what my skill set was as a mechanic and... They said, well, you know, it was a good interview, I, I thought. You know, I don't know, i would never been on one. Yeah, uh, Went home, didn't hear anything for a couple of weeks, and thought, eh, yeah. you know, it was a good dream, but, you know, whatever. And then I just got a call, and they said, this is Boeing Employment, and uh, we would like you to start in two weeks, and could you come <laughs> down and finish up the process? <laughs> I hadn't even finished graduating from high school yet, and I now just landed and, back in nineteen eighty. Boeing with some of the top paid jobs in this area. Yeah. It was really good. I, my starting wage was four times what my minimum wage job I had at the time. Was. <laughs> I didn't even know what to do. I was like, I all of a sudden now had a grown-up income, and I was, you know, still in high school. Wow. And uh, they let me work what was called a split shift, so I worked a half a first shift, half a second shift. Okay. So I could continue to finish and graduate high school. Yep. And then, um, yeah, and then I came on to the day shift down there and uh, moved around in the Boeing company over the years and took on a lot of opportunities into the electronics and the uh, research and development side. Yeah. So after the automotive, I was there for two years and they were doing a lot of layoffs. It was the recession in the early 80s and I uh, I found another job in the military division of Boeing and found my way into the electronics world and the research and development world and then I spent probably the last 25 years at the Boeing company working in uh, research and development and uh, automation our robotics type uh, assembly processes in the high-tech field yes
1: very cool yeah
0: so um the Boeing company really offered me a lot of opportunities and I took a lot of chances yep and and any opportunity that came along, I just didn't let it go. Yeah, I, I just like you can't let that go. You you got to take them when they come up. Yeah, you know. That's
1: even really sometimes cool. it's
0: scary, and even if you fall flat on your face, right? You know, yeah. opportunities are the things you never let go by. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. So then, um, what was it like for you then, starting when you started at Boeing and stuff? <laughs>
0: That's that's a funny story all in itself. Well, being uh, the first woman they'd ever hired into their automotive division <laughs> as a mechanic, I came in as what they would call an apprentice, um, and they weren't really thrilled about having to hire women.
1: Uh, yeah. They were they were
0: asked to basically you know uh, you know a little bit of uh, trying to get a little equal rights in there for for different people yeah. and. Um, you know there was very little people of color there were no women the funny thing is I go into the automotive shop and it's like okay well we really don't have a locker room for women and we don't have a woman's bathroom so I would have to actually go all the way over into the main factory area to use the bathrooms out there because they had no women's facilities they just didn't it was all made for men (laughs) on my first day I think they were trying to see you know how tough I was going to be and how I'd manage so they sent me out uh, with a vehicle number they said go get this vehicle and bring it in the shop. I'm like oh okay just a little kid go out there <laughs> gotta get the vehicle and I'm like oh no it was a semi uh, tractor trailer uh, uh, Mack truck and back then they had a little <laughs> bit older ones and I'm like okay I get in it and I'm like Okay, one, I've never driven a stick before. This ought to be interesting. <laughs> um, it was so bad. I sat in there. I did finally get it started. I had no idea, like, how to release the air brakes or how to do any oh of that stuff. But, and they were all just watching to see whether I would manage to figure it out or not. It took me a while, and it was really an awkward, you know, trying, you know, driving a stick when you don't know how, especially a semi is oh not <laughs> really smooth. <laughs> I managed to get it in there and get it in the shop. But this is kind of the never-ending challenges they kind of put me through, <laughs> trying to you know, see, you know, I'll well, tough stuff. Uh, they actually paired me up with my um, journeyman, because they usually pair up an apprentice with a journeyman. And uh, good or bad, it ended up being good in, in the end. Uh, the man that I was paired up with was deaf. He was 100% deaf, and I had never been around someone who was deaf. So that threw this huge challenge on me. I'm like, "What? Really? You're gonna throw me?" And he had kind of a bit of a temper, but I kind of just toughed it out with him for a few months, and eventually he warmed up and he figured out that I would work hard. I'd do anything I was told to do, and then I kind of became like his daughter. He just <laughs> He treated me so good, and we had great, you know, our communication was all written because he didn't sign or anything at that time. So we would just write these little notes, and I got really good at being able to just write down what I needed, and yeah. He could um, talk. He was a little hard to understand, but he could talk um, pretty well. Uh, But yeah, that was kind of the things that they did to me. It was a (laughs) never-ending. Send me out on service calls where I would go out to change tires on semis on the road. And you get out there, and the drivers are like, "Oh, let me help you," because they really didn't want me to have to change the tires on their big trucks. <laughs> but it did. It, it. I. I managed to get through and and survived the couple of years that I was there at the automotive, and I flourished. I, I really enjoyed it, and I think some people were threatened by having women come in the fields. Yeah. But by and large, I think most of the Guys eventually come to figure out that I was just there to work like everybody else, and uh, it and it was really really fun. Yeah, a really great opportunity in my life. Yeah, Yeah, very Very cool. Yeah.
1: So how did that end up transitioning into the next piece then?
0: Well, the next piece was when I was getting laid off, and I moved. um, I needed a job. I wanted to stay with the company, and they were (laughs) hiring people um, in the military division. For electronics work. And back in then it was a space in the military side. So we were still building um, uh, the Range Rover and stuff for the moon. That stuff was still being done. A lot of space technology. Okay. IOS satellites were brand new back then. So that was new stuff. But I I took a job, even though it was a downgrade and stuff. I'm like, well, I wanted to stay. And I went into that because I had experience reading blueprints and so on. So that was good. And I just started doing assembly and manufacturing in the electronics side, and I excelled. Just was I was, I had an aptitude for it. Mm-hmm. And then Boeing offered a lot of classes, yeah. so I was able to take uh, electronics classes through Boeing, and they sponsored them. Oh, nice! And so any more skills that I wanted to learn, they were just great about allowing you to. If you are motivated, you could do anything you wanted. Yeah. And it was really good. And eventually. Um, I just kind of, I like to train people, and so I started taking on this kind of training people how to do things and ended up being a lead and starting running a lead on projects. Yeah. And I ended up moving into the uh, military side for the uh, B1 and the B2 programs, which I really enjoyed. And eventually ended up back up at Everett, mostly because I live north and commuting all the way into Seattle was brutal, so (laughs) I took a job on the commercial side in the electronics side. Okay. And came back up to the Everett plant. Nice. And I ended up supporting uh, tech, uh, research and development and technologies and tooling. And at the time, they were just starting to bring in, would have been the 777, the beginning of the 777 program. Okay, yeah. yeah. they were bringing in these uh, big automated electronic uh, systems for assembling the aircraft. Mm-hmm. And it was new, they weren't doing it anywhere else in the world, so Boeing was really kind of groundbreaking. And I kind of just got teamed up with some people where I was helping on the electronics installation side of the control systems. And pretty soon I just got involved and I became part of the team for the automated tooling okay. world at Boeing. And wow. it was really good. Uh, Lots of years work 777 program moved into 47 and they were automating a lot of the processes over there. Yeah. So it's kind of like computer control robotics, not like super (laughs) high tech, not like super, super fancy robotics, but it was moving the aircrafts in these really small movements to get these, you know, perfect fits like you need for an aircraft. Yeah. So that was really another opportunity that just came my way and I picked up on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was really good. Nice. And I ended up uh, also working what they call static and fatigue test. Okay. Which is where we test all the airplanes for their durability. Yeah. So we basically uh, take the first couple airplanes and we put them through their paces and break them and hook them all up and move them around until we can break the parts. And so you're testing the manufacturing build, and the strength of the aircrafts, the expectations of what they expect, how long they'll last... Yeah. Uh, take them through a life cycle of like a 30-year life cycle in two years. So you run them under pressure and then test them to see how all the structure does over yeah. time. Yeah, it's a really neat, was a really neat team to be yeah. with, yeah.
1: Very cool. So uh, my background is mechanical engineering.
0: Oh, awesome. Um, my husband so, is a mechanical engineer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so
1: I, I worked at uh, Janicky Industries up north. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, and so we worked with, um, you know, I worked on some of the few fu- uh the segments that were made for the tail end of the fuselage that Janaki would produce for them um,
0: on, on the, um, the composite side, on or the, the composite the side, composite yes. side, excellent. Yeah. yeah. So it's
1: for the down in South Carolina mainly.
0: Yeah. My um, husband worked for advanced integration technologies who teamed up with Janaki okay. for a lot of their work as well. Yeah. Nice. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so w- it was cool. Cause when we, we actually did a uh, eight month stint down in Boeing cause we basically had a for a long time Janicky had a contract with them that they would send someone down and stay with them and kind of help them on with that on site yeah yeah and so uh I was chosen for that for one of the the cycles and so my wife and I and the kids moved down there um our youngest son was actually born there um, how do
0: you like it down there
1: uh it was it was fascinating I mean um you know I'd worked with Janicky, which they've got decent sized manufacturing plants and stuff like that but you work inside of Boeing and it's it's a different world It's so big
0: it's so monstrous I, mean, I know people come in and they're like oh. you get um kind of numb to how big it is when you work inside the yeah. facilities you just forget you know yeah oh yeah we have three four sevens all parked park next to each other you know I didn't even think about it right yeah.
1: well and I think that was the weird thing is you would be walking through the hangar where you they had all of the assembled planes and they're doing finishing things on them and you're like, oh, it's not, I mean, it's big, but it's not that big until you start realizing scale. Like when you look at different things and you're like, oh, up there on the wall, or like on the second, you know, or whatever floor it is, like that's a door. And it looks like, you know, like a kid door, like it, <laughs> everything is so small. And then when you're walking by semi trucks and stuff and you're like, they look like toy trucks in there. <laughs> <It's just laughs> in <comparison. laughs>
0: I will say <clears throat> Of all the programs, Triple Seven—the original Triple Seven—was my favorite. But the airplanes, my favorite is the Four Seven. Okay. What's your favorite airplane of those?
1: Uh, I don't know. I I always got the numbers all mixed up. I always wanted to see what the like Dreamliners and stuff looked like or felt like to actually fly on because we saw so many of them, and but we didn't get to like the chance yeah. to fly on yeah. one.
0: Yeah. yeah. So
1: I just thought they were fascinating. I just Like, the amount of stuff they put into those, all of the planes and stuff. And just the, I don't know, everything is such a tight tolerance and everything has to be designed. And then when you try and make luxury, but in small, it's just really interesting. The little things you can do. Like, you know, when they talk about, like, we've added an extra inch to foot room. And you're like, well, what's that mean? (laughs) But it ends up feeling like a lot. A lot of
0: space. Yeah, and I think in the manufacturing process, like you understand people don't understand, like, when we're assembling an aircraft, I like, even, like, 4.7, it's called determinate Is what they call it. The manufacturers build your parts, we bring them together, mm-hmm. and we're uh, aligning these monstrously huge aircraft panels within a hundreds of a thousandths of an inch of tolerances, yep. you know, and using lasers to set uh, aircrafts to these, you know, perfect tolerances, yep. you know, and people like They think of him as he's, oh, you're big assembling and riveting and together. I'm like, yeah, you it's way more technical than that. Yeah. Well, and I,
1: so before, so I worked, um, I worked on the stress analysis team at Janaki. But before that I was working on the floor as a metrologist. So I was doing the laser, you know, all all the the tracker work
0: and stuff. Yeah. Oh, tracker work is fun. Yeah. I love tracker work.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So we were doing all of those things and, um, it was, it's just crazy how tight of tolerances everything had to be.
0: Yeah. And so I, yeah, it's funny, I did not know you were a part of the aircraft. No, so at, and you ended up here. Yep.
1: <laughs> yeah, nice. so I, I was in the engineering world for about five years. Um, and one thing I really enjoyed, it was so cool seeing all the different things happen. But one thing I realized about myself is that I enjoyed the working with the people, the teams, working on the teams, uh, and where my career path was taking me was really specialized because stress analysis is very specialized and the deeper you go into it the more you go into either like you're a finite element element analysis person or you're a you know you know the calculation side but you end up being very much in your lane and you you work a little bit with other teams but for the most part they give you the project and you get it done
0: yeah one guy goes and does all the design and then he hands it to you to go do the stress analysis yeah (laughs) exactly yeah and so
1: what I found was I was like I'm not I don't have the human-human interaction as much, um, so I was looking at like possibly trying to move into project management or things like that, um, and then uh, yeah, things changed and um, my dad needed some people with the company, um, so I was actually let go from Janiki because they, I had become a, like I didn't fit in any of their squares, you know, because um, I didn't really want to continue in stress analysis and I wasn't I didn't have enough skill set yet. To do any sort of project management, and they already had a pretty decent amount of project managers, and so they didn't have a spot for me. So they kind of didn't have a spot, so they just let me go, and that allowed me to figure out what I really wanted to do. And so then I started working with my dad, and now I'm here. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Sometimes you know the things you think are bad end up being some of the best things that ever happened to you. you yeah. Know?
1: yeah.
0: It's funny because my husband is a mechanical engineer in the automation mm-hmm. world in aircraft and. We're kind of, you know, our, our love was born of tooling automation because I was doing the electronics side and he was on the mechanical side, the design yeah. side. And that's how we met on okay. the 4-7 project, which is <laughs> who of I, yeah.
1: I see why it's your favorite plan. <laughs>
0: and yeah, and no, we worked, you know, we managed for a lot of years. We worked together uh, for a lot of years, which is hard. Yes. Uh, but we did do really good. Our, 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 our thought processes are a lot alike. So, yeah. Yep. He was doing the mechanical side, I was on the electronic side, and so it worked really cool. <laughs> nice.
1: Very cool. Yeah, no, I think I still think it's fascinating, and, and what blew me away, especially at the, I mean, just at the Boeing plants, but the one we were in in South Carolina, they kept getting to the point where they were trying to up their numbers of planes they would produce per month, and it just blew me away when, they're, when we first got down there, I think, um, or when I moved down there, I think they were at 12 per month, and then... By the time we left, I think they were at, like, 18. And their goal was to get to, like, 30, I believe. And just that, The, the
0: like, concept it, of that. Yeah.
1: Like, <laughs> when you walk through a completed plane, you're like, they want to get to this point with, you know, they were at 12 planes when we got there, which is just mind-boggling.
0: In and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So
1: it's, it's just crazy. The amount, like, there's a lot of things about Boeing that you're like, man, they're really slow moving on making decisions or on certain things because they're, they're a massive company. But the w- way they get their work done, like their system buildings or things like that that they put into place that allow people that aren't like the most skilled people in the world. Like a lot of the people you're working with are pretty average people, but they are the ones who are putting these planes together at that rate. And you're like, how does this all work?
0: Yeah, I think I, when I left the developmental side for the first time and went into support manufacturing directly for automation, so a big part of my last few years was I was the technical specialist for the automated control system side. So I helped the shop train and then help keep the systems running and then uh, help ensure any upgrades that were coming or changes we needed. Like if the aircraft manufacturing process changed, then all the automation associated to that had to change yes. with it to change yeah. with the processes. And so the whole process and how you can't really change one thing without touching a hundred other things that then touch a thousand other things and it just gets exponential as you go down the road yeah and when I started working directly in manufacturing I realized because I was a bit of a snob at the time thinking oh they're just the shop people yeah No, you realize how skilled those people are yeah how much they know and without them aircrafts don't get built right you know they have so much skill and people don't give them the credit for the skill that they have out in the factory so yeah people out there were fantastic Work yeah. hard a lot of hours yeah and uh yep
1: very it, cool done
0: building these beautiful things everybody gets to go on beautiful vacations and <laughs> I know yeah,
1: yeah. no it's, it's really cool and then my friend is a pilot so I get to hear from him every once in a while Um,
0: Whether he likes them or not. (laughs) Right. Well,
1: some of the older ones, he's like, oh, my word, it was terrifying, you know? um, But, uh, yeah, no, it's really cool. It's neat what they do. And they have done so much for that area, for this area. I mean, Camino, so many people on Camino commute to Boeing every day.
0: Yeah, like I said, when I was was young, I mean, working for Boeing was... A privilege, it was fantastic. It was yeah. super good pay, it was, um, it was the place to be, yeah, you know, yeah, and it was nice, yeah. Um, and they do employ so many people, and they, they, and then the people they employ, you know, support all our businesses, and yeah, so I really think the Boeing Company has been awesome for our area. Yeah. they stay, I really hope they stay, yeah, I know.
1: <laughs> so, this kind of brings me to one of the other things that we talked about, um, prior to the podcast, but, um. Uh, you seem very passionate about things like vocational schooling and things like that versus your kind of traditional college path which for all of my growing up years, you know, I I was born in 89, you know, throughout my years was just everyone was pushing towards the colleges, you know, STEM, going to college, um, and I feel like the vocationals kind of fell by the wayside but now we're really seeing that importance of those so I wanted you to talk a little bit about that.
0: That is a oh that's a big passion me and my husband both have that we see now both Dave and I are um very hands-on people Mm -hmm. I you know grew up in a household my my dad was a carpenter uh and so he was in the trades and so most everybody in my family was kind of in the trades work and back then trades were really good pay and they still are um Dave's uh, dad had a concrete business. Mm-hmm. So that was, again, it's trades. Yeah. Concrete work and all his trades. And nowadays you find they stopped having auto mechanics. There was no more uh, machine shop in high school, no more carpentry in high school. Now you find you see people, people don't know how to work on their own car. They don't know how to fix things. People haven't been trained. And so now you try to go find an auto mechanic My truck's actually in the shop right now, and they don't even have a full crew. Can't even hire enough mechanics to fill those slots. Vocational training, I think, got set aside as, oh, well, if you can't go to college, you'll get vocational training. And I think that that was really, um, it was very short-sighted. Yeah. Because now we're short of all of the tradespeople that the Mm -hmm. vocational schools taught carpenters, electricians, plumbers, everything, and all of those jobs are super good-paying jobs. And the thing I think I really appreciate about uh, vocational schools, and then they usually go right into the trades, and they have apprenticeships. So you can go to a vocational school, be in an apprenticeship, you're now also getting paid. Yeah. You're getting to go to school. You're getting training. And then that's going to work you into your journeyman jobs. And you literally, you're usually already having a job while you're being trained in the skill. As yep. opposed to going to college, maybe you go to college for engineering and then you find out after four years and $60,000 that you don't like it. Right. <laughs> and now you not only have an education you didn't really want or you know can't put to use and a possibly a skill set that isn't in your Wheelhouse. Right. And if you go into a trade or you go to vocational school, you're now working in that field. You can kind of determine pretty quickly, Yeah, this isn't my thing. Yeah. But you haven't spent a bunch of money. Right. You haven't committed so much. Maybe you were in the carpenter's trade, but you want to lean <clears> over towards the electrician. Well, a lot of the skills you've learned will still translate over. Yeah. And I really would love to see our high school's. Put all of the vocational training back in the high schools again. Yeah. Give people a chance to feel what it feels like to work with wood. What yeah. it feels like
1: to work on a car.
0: And it'll give you a little bit of an idea if that's something you might want to do. Well, yeah. Hands-on, you know? Well, yeah. Hands-on
1: training. Well, and I think there are, there are so many people that <clears throat> um, in my generation, I think, would have, been, would have naturally followed into the trades. But there was such this push to go to college that they ended up there. Now they're... You know, as they call it, like desk jockeys. And they're like, I don't like working at a computer. I don't like doing these things. I want to do something, you know.
0: Want to work but, with my hands. Yeah,
1: but they're they're not doing that. And they're like, well, now I need to pay for my debt and everything else. So, like, this and is where I'm going to be. Now I'm
0: stuck. You, yeah. you kind of get yourself stuck a little bit. Yeah. And I think that, for me personally, when you work with your hands and you create something or you fix something of your own or whatever in the yeah. house, you know, There is such a satisfaction to that. Yeah. I fixed that or I made that versus I bought that. Yeah. You know, and I think that when people experience that, they realize, I really enjoy actually building something or creating something with my hands. Yeah. And it gives you a little bit more, I want to say, independence because you're like, well, if my car breaks down, there's some things you can do on your own or... You know, if my dishwasher breaks down, can I fix it? As opposed to being stuck, having to call somebody, have somebody come in and take care of it for me? right? You, right? Yeah. yeah. And from a woman's perspective, having any skills that, you know, it's been back in my day, let's say I needed something fixed.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, I don't want to be the woman in distress going, oh, I can't fix that myself, you know? <laughs> Yeah. It's nice to have the independence, and with independence comes freedom, yeah. I think. And yeah. sometimes when you've gone to college, you have all this debt, you kind of taken your freedom away a little bit Yeah. with your debt and yeah. your commitment to the job you thought you maybe wanted. Yep.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, and for sure.
0: Exponential technologies and stuff, so many of the skills that people thought they would go to college for, are now being replaced by technologies and um, AI and stuff. So you got to be very careful what you go to school for. Yeah. But no AI is going to be able to build a piece of furniture, <laughs> you know, handcraft something for you, right. you know. So the skills to me are always going to be needed. Yeah. And and they're extremely um, in short supply skilled yes. people. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you hear on the radio, you'll constantly hear, you know, oh we're taking on apprentice for this for carpentry for anything right yeah it's uh, you know there's jobs out there for people it doesn't require you know sixty thousand dollars in debt in college to you
1: know find a career yeah and like being on the other side of that and like when something's going wrong here within the marketplace or within our building complex it's like trying to get someone out when you've got an emergency like something is not going right and it could be very destructive it's like Trying to get someone to get out is so difficult. You're calling multiple plumbing companies or electrician, you know, and you're just, it's it's getting smaller and smaller.
0: (laughs) I think I took my, um, we work on our own vehicles, but I bought a newer truck Mm -hmm. and we got a warranty, uh, extended warranty. And I wanted to just have one thing that, you know, we didn't have to work on ourselves. (laughs) So you really can't work on it yourself because you'll void your warranty. Right. So I call. I'm like, yeah, it's not shifting. Well, um, we can get you an appointment um, in early December. Um, December? You said December? (laughs) So yeah, so that was like two weeks ago, and so I'm like without a vehicle till they can look at it in December, and they're just like, we can't hire people. We don't have a full staff. We cannot get mechanics in like you, right? Can't get it fixed. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Well, now they can't even get the cars in because those aren't. Just...
0: Then I'll be lucky if they find out I won't be able to get the parts and then it'll be another two months, three months. Ah! Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, it's interesting time. So much for
0: the new car.
1: <laughs> so, um, okay, so you've done, uh, you were doing all of these things on the mechanical side, um, but you did mention that your dad had done some woodworking um, stuff. Yeah. Is, how did you get how did you kind of come back to woodworking
0: Actually that yeah that kind of goes with the meeting, meeting my husband mm-hmm. <laughs> um, We were dating and he was working out of a shop in Everett and it was a really cool little place it was like a co-op woodworking place where they had all this equipment and you paid a fee and you could go in there you paid a monthly fee and then you could use all the big equipment wow. you know and you could do your woodworking there and um especially for a lot of people if you had an apartment yeah. or something like that and you didn't have a, a space to work and he was going there he was doing building some furniture and he's like you know they got these woodworking classes and you know your dad you know did all this furniture work he maybe you'd be interested in taking the class and i literally i went down there they had a wood turning class, lathe class, and I participated in my first class there, and I was absolutely hooked. Going back in that woodworking shop, the smell, everything, just reminded me of all the years spent in my dad's woodworking shop. And I don't know if you've ever been in a woodworking shop, yeah. but you walk in and it's just this, oh, the smell of wood, the smell of all that stuff is so beautiful. Yeah. And I started taking classes there at um, the little shop there in Everett and it was so much fun and I, you know, started to learn more skills, but with all my mechanical background, I had a lot of knowledge of equipment, of running equipment and tools and things. Yeah. And so that was about 2001 and I kept taking classes and eventually they started having what's called master classes. Okay. So they were bringing in uh, artists in the woodworking field and turning from all over the world. They were bringing oh. them in to teach classes. Yeah. And I didn't even know that was a thing, but it, apparently <laughs> it was. A, it's a big deal that a lot of these artists travel all over the world and teach their craft. And so I got this exposure to these wonderful artists who uh, were one, teaching me skills, And and just their passion for their art and for their woodworking was so overwhelming. And and I'd always thought of wood as a craft, wood workmanship, you know, craftsmanship. Yeah. I never thought about it as art. Mm -hmm. But as I was around these people whose kind of viewpoint of woodworking and turning, and it was art. It's a different kind of art. Yeah. It, It takes a craft, but then your craft allows you to create this art yeah and uh it was so fun to work with these people i met so many really interesting people yeah and that's kind of how i got started woodworking again. okay
1: yeah. so then as you started getting back into it then um when did the idea of actually taking it past just you enjoy it as a hobby
0: <laughs> i got to be where i enjoyed I, I bought my own lathe, which is a big deal, wow. you know, and I, yeah. <laughs> I, I bought a lathe, and I, I, you know, so I had my little shop at home, and uh, the funny thing was I didn't really have a shop at the time, so I just had the lathe in my garage. I kind of carved out a little corner for myself there, you know, got you know, a few grinding tools and the things you need, and um, I just loved it so much that I started to create so many things yeah. <laughs> that at some point what do I do with it? Do I sell it? And I got asked, somebody had seen some of my work and they asked me to participate in art by the bay. Mm -hmm. And so to be in art by the bay, I had to have a business license and I had never thought about having a business. It was really funny for me to even (laughs) think about it. So I'm like, Oh, okay, I guess I have to get a business license. So I went through that process of getting a business license and Kind of start that business. And mm-hmm. Art by the Bay was kind of my biggest focus for a couple of years. Yeah. And around here, it's a big deal to yeah. participate in Art by the Bay. Yeah. And that was really fun. And the funny thing is, Art by the Bay was where I met your dad. Okay. And that's, uh, you guys were having your booth. Yeah. And it was still just the roaster. Yep. And um, after, I think, on the second time, you're, I was asked to to participate, you guys had the Christmas Yes, uh,
1: the holiday house had the
0: holiday house yep. over at the roaster in the little roaster area <laughs> over there. Yep.
1: They would take up all of uh, the shipping department <laughs> the and they would shipping. turn it into the Christmas house so then all the shippers would be behind the curtain.
0: And it was so funny because I participated it was it was, I could not believe the amount of people that would line up to go through to shop in there and I'm like People really like to buy stuff like this. This is really cool. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it was so, I don't it was so unique to have that little space in there and and have everybody coming through. So that's kind of how I got hooked up selling stuff here.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Very cool.
0: And then eventually, once you guys did the store, then uh, Christy had asked me to be a permanent, um, could I be a permanent vendor and and sell here? So it definitely keeps me busy. Nice. (laughs) Well, good. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So um, tell us about your process then, because one of the things that always uh, baffles me when it comes to woodwork is when you see a finished product and it's like, you know, the varnish and everything and it's smooth and it's like, it doesn't look or feel like wood anymore. Right. Um, Tell us about your process of how you start and how you get to the ending.
0: Yeah, so part of, um, if I go, you know, kind of big process... um, when it comes to all the wood that I collect, so um, we try, primarily we harvest most of all of our own wood, mm-hmm. and what we try to do is, you'll get a lot of trees that go down in storms, yeah. and a lot of trees either that have to come out, maybe it's construction or somebody has a dangerous tree. Uh, we try really hard to. People offer, if it's good wood, you know, we're, we're first out to go to go pick up wood or to have people go hey I got a tree would you like to come you know take the wood and so we try not to like cut down trees that would you know we try not to do that if we if we at all can yeah and if a tree has to be cut down one of the cool things we love now is we will take a tree we may mill the lumber and it'll either be for furniture work and then or some of it will be for me for turning and uh that wood never really dies it either becomes a piece of art yeah. it becomes a piece of furniture and it continues to live on yeah. you know if a person gives me some wood i usually try to make them make them something if it's a tree that was on their property or a tree they were real fond of i will make them something that yeah. they can have as a representation and uh, we'll process all the wood down and i store it and then eventually i'll kind of like have an idea I want to make something and you kind of, I have a lot of wood, <laughs> so you start picking through everything. Oh, maybe it should be out of a piece of maple, or maybe it'll be out of a piece of alder.
1: So, real quick, the only storage of wood that I'm aware of is firewood. So, like, do you oh. guys, how do you guys store yeah. this type of wood? Then?
0: Um, we, to, to, well, we now have a kiln, which is really nice. So, we, uh, we'll process our wood through the sawmill, or I'll cut it into, you know, um, rough sections for wood turning, which is kind of a different storage for that. And then we'll put all of our flat lumber, will go into the kiln. Okay. And then the kiln will take the moisture content down, and it's slow. It's a slow process, so your wood doesn't check. You see how firewood gets checked and split. Yep. Kind of want to minimize <coughs> uh, all of that. We'll yeah. put it in the kiln, and then we, we built a, um, a shop. We have about a 5,000-square-foot shop now okay. at our house, and a big chunk of that is our woodworking side, and we store... The wood goes from the kiln to dry storage inside the shop, Okay. and then that way it stays at a constant uh, moisture content, yep. it kind of moves with the moisture of the area, and uh, that's how we store it. Now my woodworking, if it's for turning, I sometimes will cut it into particular sizes that fit on, one that fit on my lathe, and that, oh, that's going to be a bowl, I want to orient it this way, so I'll cut the wood into sections. And then I'll uh, seal up the ends with the wax, and then I'll store them on some racks that I have and some storage areas in the shop. Okay. So they dry slowly. Yeah. But so when I turn them, they kind of will hold their shape, and they won't split or check on me during the right. process. You know, it's kind of part of the process of yeah. storing your wood. Yeah. And sometimes wood doesn't survive storage, and you <laughs> go pull it out, and it's like, oh. I <laughs> know. Yeah. It's going to be a much smaller piece than I had anticipated because <laughs> it's now got a big check right down the middle. You know. Okay. So, yeah, so wood is uh, natural, and it has a mind of its own, let's just say. So sometimes it doesn't want to be what you want it to be. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you have to kind of work with that a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Mother Nature has her own ideas sometimes, and it isn't always what we want. <laughs>
1: yes. Yeah.
0: But, awesome. yeah, I'll... Um, and I may not touch some of my wood for like a year or so after it's been, you know, processed. Okay. Because it's not dry enough to really work with. Um, but once I have a piece that's dry enough and I'll take it and I'll I'll look at the wood, I'll kind of look at all the grain patterns and decide, oh, how would that, if I do a bowl out of that, how will that grain look and mm-hmm. how do I want, which direction do I want to turn it? And uh, then I usually will rough cut them on a bandsaw to uh, shape. Okay. And then... Um, mount them on the lathe and then you know start the turning process and and hopefully the wood (laughs) the wood agrees with me and wants to become what I want it to be um but then I'll do you know all my tools on the lathe are hand tools so you have just a tool rest and your tools are in your hands and you're actually just you're moving not like a mm, machine lathe where it's all moving automatically this is all by hand okay and uh you know usually if it's like a bowl I turn the basic outside shape first, then I turn it around, and then I will hollow out and turn out the inside of the okay. bowl. And, you know, try to keep, sometimes you'll see some of my work is real thin, mm-hmm. and some of it will be thicker. It all kind of depends if the piece should be a little thicker piece or what it kind of catches my eye as I'm working on them. Yeah. But as I get down to my shape, I start the sanding process, and I will start okay. sanding at like 80 grit, and then I go... You know, 80 grit, 120, 150, 180, all the way through the grits down to about 800. Oh, wow. So okay. that's where you get that fine. Uh, and then midway through the sanding process, I start putting on what's called a sanding sealer. Okay. And it helps seal up your grain. And then you keep. Then I'll keep sanding through that process. And then eventually when I get down, if I'm dyeing the colors, which I love doing, the yeah. dyeing process is so fun, about... About 400 grit, I'll start applying the dyes.
1: Okay. And
0: uh, then they can penetrate the wood. And then I keep sanding off and re-dyeing until you can get that kind of richness. You see in some of my colors are really rich. Yeah. It's multiple layers of dye. Okay. Um, And then in the end, once I'm down to about 800 grit, I'll start polishing with like a hard wax, a paste wax. Okay. And then polish and sand the wax down and then polish again until you can just get that... Glossy, smooth. It feels like glass yeah. when you touch them. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, that was the thing. I was like, I've always like your pieces. I like feel them. I'm like, I have no idea how it gets to this point.
0: <laughs> a feeling not no longer feels like wood. Yeah. 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 And if you will find when you look at like a really fine piece of crafted furniture, the first thing you want to do is run your hand over the furniture, yeah. right? Because it just it just says, oh, touch me," and they're smooth and shiny and just beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm adding a little bit of. Um, there's a uh, product called Def, which is a lacquer sealer, and I'm starting to use a little bit of that to help uh, uh, even make an even shinier, a little more depth to the finish on okay. them. I do like to finish off with the paste wax because if somebody buys a piece, uh, min wax can be bought anywhere, okay. and anybody can touch it up. You okay. know, over the years they can polish it with wax, and if they not brighten it up a little bit or if it looks like it's getting dry, they can polish them up. So okay. I try to keep it user friendly buyer friendly
1: yeah <laughs> yeah nice yeah very cool so the other question i had then um where did the name northern lodge creations come from
0: i get to uh, i get to give that to a really good friend of mine um he was up here from texas visiting he's part of a, a company that has a lot of automation he owns that and he was up here visiting and you know texas is kind of pretty bland <laughs> and he was up here he's just like up at the house and it's just So many trees, and I live on about seven acres, and there's a lot of timber around. And it's like, your house is just like a lodge out in the mountains. I'm just going to call it the Northern Lodge. (laughs) And it stuck, and it got to be kind of a joke between us about the Northern Lodge. And uh, eventually, when I started my business, I adopted the name. I actually called him. I said, hey, you know, I'm going to use the name, you know, for my business. And he kind of thought that was pretty funny. I said, I wanted to honor you with that because it fit really well. Yeah. And the Northern Lodge Creations, and it really suits the kind of woodworking I do. Yeah. Yeah, and the kind of work that I like to do, yeah.
1: Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Um, so the other thing uh, we, I wanted to touch on, because um, you were telling me about this before we started the podcast, you guys are, are redoing your house, oh, yeah. but not just like a small remodel. So yeah. tell us a little bit about the process, <laughs> and then what's kind of the your your vision for like the end goal of it? Well
0: part of this was well, it's, it's getting to be great it's back to woodworking both me and my husband love to do woodworking and we decided we were going to do remodel and got plans and they were kind of eh. you know it was <laughs> like well the the idea of the the concept of what walls were going to come out and stuff was fine and we knew we were going to do all the work ourselves and then we weren't sure like well kind of, well, what's the look we're kind of going for? And I ended up uh, contacting a, a wonderful lady, uh, and she helped us do a little bit of design. She works on craftsman homes, so she does a lot of restoration work in craftsmen, in you know, old historic craftsman homes. So we said, well, we'd like our house to maybe have that craftsman look with that true craftsman style, millwork and all that stuff. And it started out just being a remodel, and it's now become this whole huge process of most of the wood in our home, including all of our cabinets, uh, the millwork, um, the box beams, all of our ceiling beams, trim doors, all is wood that came from our property, trees that we had, um, and then we milled them process the wood down took it down to dimensional lumber we've built all of our cabinets we've done all the millwork, and in a true craftsman style home and just uh really amazing i mean i can't even imagine when i walk in there how much work we've done over the last four <laughs> years and so in that whole process uh, I'm learning a ton about different styles of woodworking. So my husband is helping me learn what we call flat work or how to do cabinet work. Okay. And cabinet work also goes into building like boxes and different stuff, which I'm now going to be adding to my art. Okay. of jewelry boxes and different processes of yeah. how to do different kind of joinery, like finger joints or whether you're going to do biscuit joining of uh, you know, cabinets or boxes. So I'm learning all these great skills, and it was kind of funny because my dad had all these skills, but I was pretty young when yeah. he was doing that. So although I saw the work done, I didn't have the hands on myself. And now I've, I'm, I'm just acquiring tons of woodworking skills. And we're just finishing our upstairs. Finally, the hardwood floors are down, all the millwork is in, um, and now. Uh, we'll finish up downstairs. And then we're actually building, like, these craftsman columns that will go up to do these big uh, columns dividing the rooms. And so okay. that's how work we're doing. And we thought, just from our perspective, well, people will come in and they go, I can't believe you built this. And <laughs> we said, well, is this something that as a business, maybe, we would like to do expand Yeah, from just the art side to maybe people want custom cabinets built or maybe they would like a piece of furniture built or mm-hmm. you know we have the skills and it's kind of fun to share your skill your yeah. craft with yeah. other people and so me and my husband were thinking well maybe our house will be a show place and people can come and look at our craftsmanship and look at our furniture and maybe somebody wants something done
1: yeah
0: uh, so that's kind of what we were thinking in the end it didn't start out that way but <laughs> now it might end up that way
1: yeah That's very cool. So it's been like a
0: four year project, and we are still married, just saying. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) doing all the work ourselves, let me tell you. After about four years, one of living in the chaos of a remodel. Right, never
1: anything really being settled or anything. Yeah, and if you
0: move one more furniture or one more box, you know, and the fun part was the house was pretty much gutted for a while inside. We ended up moving out to our shop, and we lived upstairs. We have a a great room upstairs, so we ended up living in our shop for (laughs) almost two years because the house was too chaotic uh, to live in, so that was actually kind of fun. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and so we have a lot of equipment now of our own, which is really nice, and so one of the things we do like at Christmas, instead of buying like gifts for each other we'll buy like a tool for the woodworking side of the shop or we just bought a new drum sander or we bought a planer or something like that so that's kind of what we buy for gifts for ourselves (laughs) nice
1: that's very cool well that's really cool i'm excited to see uh pictures and stuff as you guys continue that.
0: it's been quite a project and it's been fantastic yeah yeah and it is really so cool to look around and know that you know all of the the huge kitchen is all out of the alder off of our own property all the millwork is all the fur from our own property and so it's really pretty yeah yeah
1: that's really cool it's it's a complete story it's just it has the whole aspect of maintaining what was there in the beginning
0: and the trees you know the trees that came down when we had when we built the shop we had to remove some trees and so we put them to work and one had to come out when the house was being remodeled and but it went right back into the house again because that was the one tree that did all of the trim and box beams for the kitchen was the one that was right in front of the house oh cool <laughs>
1: yeah. that's so cool
0: but no waste <laughs> yeah
1: no that's really cool my wife um I'm not a I'm an audiobook reader but not like a, a great reader but uh my wife probably three years ago um read a book that was all about the. i get the name of it but it talks about like the language of trees and how they talk to each other and how they communicate um and um I just find that I think that's that I'm like I'm I'm curious you know the trees are somewhat dead but like you know I feel like the other trees remember like they (laughs) do
0: and I and like I said I always feel you know I love nature and nobody wants to cut a tree down but in fact if something has to happen that it just, it gets to live on. And, yeah. and, it, and it becomes something so beautiful. And people are like, oh, that wood is beautiful. And they would look at a fir tree and never know that that wood inside that tree is that beautiful and has yeah. its own beauty to it. Yeah. yeah. So now I never look at wood the same. And if I go over to someone's house and they got a wood pile, like a firewood pile, I'm always like, oh, <laughs> what kind of wood's in your fire pile? And people are like, my husband's like, stop pulling wood out of their fire pile. Paula, please. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh,
0: Can't help myself. <laughs> yes. Oh.
1: Um, so um, who are some other uh, woodworker artists um, or people that you know of um, either within the area or, or from afar that you oh. like?
0: It's, I know when I looked at that question and I was looking back into it, a um, couple of artists that I... I worked with as as a wood turner mm-hmm. and they um Johannes Michaelson. Okay. He is out of Vermont and he is an amazing man. Uh he does these one of his well-known things he does these uh wood turned cowboy hats and different kinds of hats okay. and they're wearable. They're they're beautiful and they're they're turned so thin that you actually can see light through them. They're so beautiful. Wow. But uh He has turned hats for almost every president in the last probably 30 years. Really? Yeah, and he has work in the Smithsonian. There's a a huge uh, wood turning uh, wood art in the Smithsonian, which is really amazing. Okay. Smithsonian Institute back in D.C. I got to know him, and he had this great passion, just his passion for his work. And it wasn't just, oh, hey, I'm woodworking. It was like... All of the love in him as a person just went into his art and the way he talked about it. It changed my whole viewpoint on how I looked at what I did. It wasn't, oh, I'm just going to make this and sell it. It was like, put my heart into that when I look into it and I put my love and my time into that. And it makes the art piece more beautiful maybe. And maybe not, but for me it does because it's like, I look at it, it makes me smile, I know, I put time into it, thought, and I put my heart into it. Yeah. And I, I always thought of it before as a craft, and he just showed me that you as a person can then put yourself into your work. Yeah. Yeah, and he, and he was just amazing, really loving man. I really enjoyed working with him and getting to know him. And his whole life, his whole life is woodworking. and yeah. it, And it has been for so long. It's That's really so neat. cool. And I got to know um, kind of a different side—a uh, man from uh, the UK, uh, Martin Pigeon. He's a wood turner, and uh, he did two things. He did a lot of wood turning, like a, like production wood turning. Yeah. And the thing that I learned from him, so in Europe, a lot of they have what they call guilds, and I'm, a lot of people may have heard about that. So yeah. you may have a wood turning guild or a uh, silversmithing guild. Well, if your dad was a wood turner, you went into the wood turner guild and then you were accepted and you trained as that. Mm-hmm. Kind of like vocational or craftsman here in the states, but it's like this. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, it's kind of it's just weird. You know, it's like your dad was a wood turner so you will become a wood turner. Right. And um, he was a guild turner, but he did a lot of production work. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, he had these great skills and he just came from a different world that I'm not used to. And, uh, and then he did all his production work, but then he would do his art side. Yeah. And so he had to mix. So his was a mix between art and production that made his money and then the art. That was what he really loved to do. Yeah. So he was very, very fun. And uh, I got to meet a man called, his name was Frank Sudol. Uh, he has passed since. And we did a... Um, We had a team of people that were woodturners through this club, and we created what was called Bright Lights. Yeah. And we would have, um, we would invite a woodturner from somewhere in the world to come to one of our homes where we had a shop, and then they would teach a class at our house. Yeah. You know, so, like, I had a a big enough shop that I could actually, you know, have a woodturner come and teach a class there. And uh, he did a class at my house. And he was the first person that probably introduced me to Dying wood colors okay he was somebody who was kind of innovating and in dying and doing airbrushing on finished wood he would do these beautiful like two three foot tall hollow forms and then he would do all these carvings and piercings to make these amazing art pieces and then he would paint them and dye them in all these beautiful colors and i had never seen that done with wood before and so yeah. that was my first exposure to that and he had he was kind of this uh, fantastical person he had these huge ideas about art (laughs) and creativity and he was so fun he was probably in his mm, 70s or so when I first met him and it was just really fun he was just so uh, expressive about the things that excited him and I'm like (laughs) to be in your 70s and to be just so excited was something I was like I want to be that person I want to be 70 80 years old and still get excited about things and still want to create, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you. All right. Well, I like to end every podcast with some rapid-fire questions. Sure. So the first one is, what purchase of $100 or less have you enjoyed the most in the last three
0: months? (laughs) I bought two small gourd little bowl creations at uh, the Annapurse Art Festival, and they're these little hand-painted... And then she did some, like, decoupage in the inside. And they're just sitting in this shelf, and I don't know why they make me so happy. (laughs) Every time I walk by there, I'm like, those are so pretty. And they were not very expensive, but they were just so pretty, and they make me happy.
1: (laughs) That's awesome. That's great. Um, Who is the most influential person outside of your family in your life?
0: Probably Johannes Michelson. Yeah. Yeah. He was just, really touched me as a person. I I really enjoyed uh, getting to know him. Nice. Yeah. Um,
1: Okay, this is a fill-in-the-blank question. Uh, It's, I know this is weird, but I've always wanted to, (laughs) like...
0: Play the fiddle.
1: (laughs) Okay. That's very cool.
0: I just got a fiddle. My husband bought me one, so I... I'm learning how to tune it right now. Yeah. (laughs) Step one. (laughs) Yes.
1: Yeah. That's a, it's such a cool instrument to hear it played and see it played, but it's, it's very, yeah.
0: I don't know why, just something about it just, just draws me to it and I'm so excited. Yeah. And I was, wanted to start and then when um, COVID hit, then I couldn't get lessons anywhere. So yeah, now I'm going to start all over again trying. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Nice. Very cool. There's a local fiddler, uh, Julie Campbell, and she's fantastic. Uh, she just embodies everything that you want in a fiddler. Like she's so like, happy. She's always smiling when she's playing, um, and she just could
0: playing the fiddle it. not make you happy. Yeah. I just
1: seems like it should. Yes. Well, when you're starting <laughs> up, sometimes the practice noises. That
0: well, come out. <laughs> I I will say that I think right now it's not making my dog very happy. He's like, oh, please learn to tune that soon, mom. <laughs>
1: All right. Uh, who is an interesting or fascinating person that I should interview next?
0: If you could get an interview with Marie Claire.
1: Marie Claire.
0: She's an artist and a jewelry maker out of Mount Vernon. Okay. She had her work upstairs here a little bit. Okay. And she was always at Art by the Bay. Uh, I, she's, she designed and, and did our wedding rings for me and Dave. She is a beautiful person and has a very interesting life story. Okay. And just a beautiful person. <laughs> nice. Yeah.
1: All right. And lastly, what piece of, piece of advice would you give your 20-year-old self?
0: My 20-year-old self. Actually, I jotted down a few notes on that one because I thought it was important. <laughs> if I could tell my 20-year-old self something, I'm not sure I would listen because <laughs> I was 20 and I knew everything. <laughs> <laughs> oh. It's it's to be true to yourself and and to follow your passions. Um, Don't follow the money or what other people think that you should be. Mm -hmm. Um, I spent a lot of my younger years worrying about uh, being called different or odd. Uh, The norm just never fit me. And I think that when you're young, we try to fit in where, where we think people think we should fit in. And you'll find that if you try to be what you are not, in your heart, you will be a very unhappy person. Yeah. (laughs) So just love your passion and love being different. Now, if somebody calls me odd or different, I take it as a compliment. I'm like, oh, great, I am different. (laughs) And then, you know, just embrace your individuality. Mm -hmm. Just be yourself.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very cool.
0: And and besides it... Lots of interesting people make the world way more interesting. Yes.
1: (laughs) Yes. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today.
0: Oh, thanks for having me. It was really fun. Yeah. Enjoy this.
1: And Islanders, I will talk to you on the next one. Well, a big thank you to Paula Swagger for joining me on the podcast today, and thank you for listening. If you haven't already, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. It really helps us be found by other Islanders like yourself. And for more information on this episode, you can go to KaminoCommons.com slash podcast. That's KaminoCommons.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.